it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, December 5th, 2022. A brand new broadcast week is upon us here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in. Glad to have you here. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel with the whole crew, Brett Bayer and company, right around 645 Eastern time. That's on Fox News Channel. So hope to see you there live or you can set your DVRs. Our radio program, of course, airs between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time every weekday. 3 to 6, those three hours. We encourage you to listen live if you can. If not, we have a podcast option as well. It's free. It's on demand after the show is over every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You have any number of options for that. And we just encourage you to check that out. Also to follow us, if you're interested, on social media. Another way to get in touch with the show. Bonus content, etc. At Guy Benson Show. That's our handle. Same one on Twitter and Instagram. At Guy Benson Show. Here's the lineup for today on the radio side. I mentioned the TV duties later on. Josh Krasauer of Axios will be here talking about some developments in the midterm elections They finally stopped counting in California in the last race that hadn't been called for the U.S. House. The Republican won. The House is now set. We'll talk about that. The Senate not yet set because of a runoff election tomorrow in the state of Georgia. Josh will help us preview that race as well. Coming up in our middle hour, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg is going to be here. Some developments on Ukraine and Russia's war against that country It's still very much an active story, and we will bring you the latest with General Kellogg coming up later on. And in our final hour, Miranda Devine, who's a New York Post columnist, a Fox News contributor, and she wrote the book Laptop from Hell, which is, I would say, freshly relevant again because of what we saw late on Friday after we were off the air. Elon Musk, as promised, put out a fair amount of information about how Twitter shut down and suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story right before the election in 2020. Miranda, as I said, literally wrote the book on this. We will get her reaction and analysis based on what we learned, see what she makes of it. That's coming up later on in the show. And in fact, I do want to start with some of my own thoughts on that story and a few other tentacles related to it. Here as we begin the program, I would say that by and large, my reaction to what we have learned is that to quote the former NFL coach Dennis Green, all the people involved in this, in the suppression, at Twitter, in the media, in the Biden campaign, that whole group that colluded together to try to kill this story because it could have electoral impact that they didn't want to see 
right ahead of that 2020 election. They were who we thought they were all along. In fact, this is how Dennis Green in his very famous angry press conference, I think was it 2009? I don't remember when he said it, but he was the at the time the coach of the Arizona Cardinals. They lost a tough game, I believe, to the Chicago Bears. And under questioning from reporters after the game, he went on a profanity-laced rant and said this. But they are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. That's it. 2006 was the game, by the way. They are who we thought they were. That's the application for me here. Everything that we suspected is what happened. Now, there's a few pieces to this. I have said repeatedly that I find it particularly upsetting and frightening that you would have the media involved in this cover-up as enthusiastically as they were involved in it. I'm not surprised that a presidential campaign trying to win a contested, competitive election in the final stretch of the campaign might not be fully honest about something that could be a problem for their candidate. Politicians and campaigns are not always super truthful, and they spin. It's part of their job. I'm not excusing, excusing rather, a lack of honesty, but it's also something that I think that we would expect, either outright denials or dissembling or what have you. Generally, it's the job of the news media to cut through some of that and hold feet to the fire, separate fact from fiction, and not just regurgitate immediately and compliantly one political campaign's assertion. And the assertion from the Biden team was that the laptop that was reported on by the New York Post, that whole kerfuffle was Russian disinformation. That's what they said. And the media and social media companies and elements of the intelligence community, all those retired members who signed that letter, fomenting this talking point, adding their credibility and expertise to the talking point, and allegedly elements of the FBI itself, that's something that I want to ask Miranda about later on, they all got together and said, no, this is Russian disinformation. What the Biden campaign is telling us as the marching orders, we're all going with it. And anyone who's going to dissent or stray from the group think is going to be punished and I would say trivialized, mocked, attacked as not credible delegitimized as a person or a news source, or in the case of the New York Post, disappeared from the platform of Twitter for weeks on end. Their account was suspended. Now, this is all ground that we've already gone over together before. I'm just reiterating what happened. That is collusion based on something that turned out to be wrong. Like, I would still find it pretty disturbing If when the dust all settled, it was Russian disinformation, but we weren't really sure, but they all decided to go with that and it sort of worked out for them. 
What's even worse is it wasn't uh, Russian disinformation, and it was authentic. The information was real. And now, months and years later, safely after the election, after Joe Biden was elected, you've had this drumbeat of news organizations saying, oh, wait, never mind. Actually, we have authenticated this stuff. But that's not good enough. I think that there needs to be some accountability here. I'm not sure if we'll ever get it. But the fact that they were doing inside Twitter exactly what we suspected they did for the reasons that we thought that they did, it's just sort of a validation and a vindication. For many of us who were really blowing the whistle at the time on what was happening. And what's also incredible is you are still seeing members of the media pretty viciously mean girling against anyone who, even with all the retrospect information that we now have, people who are saying, this is a big deal, this was very bad, what happened? Matt Taby, longtime journalist, celebrated on the left throughout the Bush administration and other times when he's going after the right sort of people, they love him. But the fact that he's sort of embarrassing their tribe, you have these people lining up to say, what happened to this guy? He's gone off the deep end. He's at least doing his level best to tell the truth about what happened. Unlike them. Then and now. One thing that was pretty extraordinary over the weekend was to watch a new conventional wisdom talking point materialize almost out of thin air instantly among these people, right? Back at the time in the fall of 2020, it was Russian disinformation, they said, which is just not true. The Biden campaign said Russian disinformation. They all said, yes, sir, salute, and they all repeated it, and that's how they justified burying the story, throttling access to it, censoring it, punishing people for sharing it, all of that stuff. Their line collectively at the time was, this is Russian disinformation. It is not real. It's a smear. Now, what they said over the weekend, a lot of the exact same people is, oh, well, because there were nude photos and videos of the president's son on the laptop, this is pornographic material. And that's why it needed to be censored. Why do all these conservatives demand Dick pics of Hunter Biden. Of course, that should be censored. This is pornographic, explicit stuff. It's not appropriate. That was the new story. And it just, first of all, that is one fraction of what was on the laptop. And I have stayed away from a lot of that stuff. Obviously, the guy has some personal issues and proclivities. And and probably we've seen some drug problems in the past. And there was a lot of salacious sordid material about some of his personal conduct and failings on that laptop. I have not focused on that or covered that really very much here because that's not the story. That's not the point. It's not just the troubled adult son of a president. It's the adult son of a president trading for years on the family name, enriching himself and the family, and quite possibly the big guy, i.e. now the president as well, And using that family influence and access to get foreign business dealings in Ukraine, in China, 
that Joe Biden has personally denied any knowledge of, which very much seems to be untrue based on what we are learning, based on what's on the laptop, based on the testimony, for example, of Tony Bobulinski, who worked very closely with the Bidens. He said that's absolutely not true. Joe Biden was absolutely personally, sometimes intricately involved in some of these business dealings that Biden himself told our colleague Peter Ducey he had no knowledge of whatsoever. So it's not just this little like, oh, you know, these these Puritan Republicans scolding someone for his that that is not the crux of this story. And they know it and we know it. And yet they just keep saying it. But notice the contradiction as well. October 2020, it's fake. It's a fabrication. It's planted by the Kremlin. It's disinformation. Now it's so authentic. That the dick pics are real and that's why they had to be. Censored or suppressed. This is what we call Calvin Ball, where the rules just change as the details change. Right? As we learn more, they can no longer operatively, accurately, credibly say it's Russian disinformation that's completely made up. So they just switch on a dime to, I guess someone comes up with the genius talking point. Oh, it's porn. So that's why we couldn't put it out there. And they all just say, yeah, that's it. That's the new explanation that is a direct contradiction to their last justification of censorship. The common thread is censorship. The American people shouldn't have seen this, shouldn't have been made aware of this. They were right to suppress this because I think they had PTSD from Hillary Clinton in 2016 and the whole you know, email gate and her lies about her emails and the classified materials – They've been beating themselves up for four years because it helped Donald Trump win. It happened to be true. She was guilty of that stuff. But progressives were attacking them. You guys are part of the problem. They thought this was Hillary's emails 2.0. They weren't going to make the same mistake twice. They weren't going to let Trump win. So they did what they did. And they've just seamlessly transitioned from it's not authentic and a Russian plant and disinformation to it is so authentic and explicit that that's why – it shouldn't have really seen the light of day. The censorship is what they're willing to justify. The reasons you just sort of fill in the blank as needed. So that's my overall reaction, big picture to what we saw. Now, there's also been an insane reaction to it from the former president, Donald Trump, who put out a really crazy statement that if you want to take it somewhat seriously, which I think you have to, former president, current presidential candidate, you have to address it. We'll do that when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. So much to get to on this Monday. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So Elon Musk and Twitter release all this information late on Friday. People are reacting to it. And I've made my position very clear. It was bad what Twitter did, bad what a lot of these outlets did and companies. 
and it may have had an impact on the election. Maybe not. Right? It was a close election in a handful of states. That's true. I think most Americans or most voters, as it turns out, were tired of Donald Trump. I'm not sure this is a game changer, but that's a counterfactual. I don't know. The, the For example, the Hillary Clinton people in 2016 are convinced that when it was reported that the FBI had reopened the emails investigation or at least one you know, spoke of it right before the election, that was an October surprise that ended up costing her. Maybe, maybe not. And we can debate those things. I don't blame Donald Trump for being angry about what happened here, but I do blame him for how he reacted on his truth social platform where he talked about this being a revelation of massive and widespread fraud and deception. And he said he suggested throwing out the presidential election results of 2020 and declaring either him the rightful winner or calling for a new election. He said a massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Which is just an extremely authoritarian, reckless thing to say. I understand why he's angry. That is not an excuse to say the election's invalid, throw it out, make me the winner, or we're going to do a redo election. And who really cares what the rules are or what the Constitution says? Oh, it's such a fraud that we can ignore that stuff. We can terminate those rules and clauses. That's what he said. He chose to say that. I'm not putting words in his mouth. I read to you what he said. As not just a former president of the United States, but a man who is actively seeking the office again. If he were to win that office, he would have to take the oath of office, which is the opposite of terminating parts of the Constitution that he might find personally annoying or politically frustrating. Now, he's put out another truth, quote unquote, on his platform just today, calling it fake news that he said it. He said he never said that he wanted to terminate the Constitution. This is simply more disinformation and lies, just like Russia, 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 is what he said. Except when we have the screen grab of what he said two days ago, suggesting that the election be null and void, toss out their results, declare him the rightful winner, or asking, do you have a new election? And he said that the massive fraud allows for the termination of all rules, even those found in the Constitution. That's what he said. Now he's denying that he said it. This is not responsible at all for him to be doing. It's also exhausting, and he's still talking about an election that happened more than two years ago. He's obsessed with it. Is this really what Republicans want to saddle themselves with in 2024? It's a big decision coming up. We'll be talking about it on The Guy Benson Show. More coming up. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here at the show. Our podcast is free on demand at the end of the show every day. 
And joining us now is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. And Josh, I think it was just your birthday, wasn't it? It was. uh, 41 years young, but yeah, hard, hard to believe. Well, happy birthday. Glad to have you back. Let's talk about some political developments over these last few days. I've been talking about this one race, California 13, for weeks because it was one of the outstanding races still unresolved. And just for these excruciating stretches, day after day after day, you would get a small handful of votes that would drip in. The Republican was leading, but only by a few hundred votes, five, six, eight hundred votes, something like that. And this would be a Republican pickup in the House. And we were kind of just waiting on this race to finally be called. They ran out of votes to count on December 2nd, on late Friday, and the Associated Press at long last called the race for the Republican, John Duarte, and the Democrat conceded. Josh, this was a November 8th election that was called on December 2nd, not because of a recount or extended litigation or anything like that, but because they could not count the votes, apparently, in California any faster than almost a month of counting, which I think is just ludicrous and embarrassing. That being said, it is now sort of the final score out of this election in the House. Republicans 222, Democrats 213. I know the AP still hasn't technically called the Colorado race in Colorado 3 for Lauren Boebert, even though her Democratic challenger has conceded that race. I guess there was some sort of automatic recount that was in the mix. So that is technically uncalled. But the Dem has conceded that race. So it's looking like 222 to 213, which is the exact majority that Democrats currently have just in reverse, a net gain of nine seats for Republicans in the House. So assuming that, you know, it's now official, we can close the book on the House and those races. Feel free to just maybe weigh in on how long it took them to count the votes in that district in California. And then just maybe some of your big picture thoughts of the margin and what that means moving forward. Yeah, so first of all, the, the the California count is one of the most unreported scandals out there where it took about a month. It's still there's still votes to count by the way, guy. This is yep. that They're was not just done. A, the, the critical mass critical mass to call the California 13th district race, but one of the provisions that California has in its election law is that you as long as you postmark your ballot by election day, it can take up, you know, I think four days or more. They can, they can, you know, you don't need to get your ballot into the county election bureau uh, until days after uh, the election is over. Um, so you have ballots coming in days after the election, and that's why it takes so long to even get a critical mass of votes in many of these key races. Uh, now, look, California is not a battleground state in the presidential election, but if it was – they wouldn't be able to certify before you know the the the, the benchmark the dates are due to to get get the votes certified in all the various states. So it, it really is a scandal that the rules that they passed over the last decade or two, expanding access to to the ballot, essentially has made the process so inefficient that if it was a state like Wisconsin or you know uh, Georgia or a swing state, they wouldn't be able to potentially get their, their their certification done in time. And by uh, the way, I, let me just let me just add a point on that because it just triggered another thought. There is an effort out there that I have actually talked to some of the people who are involved in this 
which is an interstate compact that they're trying to get passed, which would, if enough states agree to this compact, and it's fully constitutional the way that they're trying to do it, the compact would say that the winner of the national popular vote for president, the states involved in the compact would all agree that they would give their electoral votes to whomever won the national popular vote. And some blue states have signed on. A handful of red states have been interested. I think maybe one of them has signed on. I don't remember all the details. But California, if it came down to a very close national election in terms of the popular vote, which then actually had some determining factor on the electoral college and who would actually constitutionally win the election, to have California straggling week after week after week post the election, I mean – The amount of, I think, distrust that would stir up among a lot of voters who already are skeptical of the process, the the dysfunction that would ensue where you have to basically put everything on hold for weeks as you wait for a final determination, you know, having the, the important process of a transition, all of that might be put on hold as you wait for California to count and count and count. And it's possible that the popular vote could then switch over the course of weeks switch hands and therefore would trigger this cascade if this interstate compact were to go through. And and they're not really close yet, but there are some people pushing pretty hard for it. I mean, that would make California's system a national problem, to your point. Well, I'd go even further than that in that, like, I don't think it's realistic that this would happen. But if we did go to a popular a popular vote system instead of the Electoral College, you'd be waiting until you know mid-December if it was a close presidential race, counting these, these votes. And I, I, I don't think that's feasible. I mean, just given the electoral challenges we face uh, in, the, in the pace of counting and, and all, all the bureaucracy they're in, it would be – you'd have to have some kind of national standard. It, they'd have, the, the laws would have to look more like Florida in terms of counting the votes, getting them in, getting them in on time, you know, getting them in by Election Day. I mean, there, there would have to be a national national standard. And right now we have lots of patchwork rules throughout the country when it comes to election administration. But, you know, to, yep. to your other question, to your other question, Guy, about the yeah, it's going to it's going to be 222, 213 in the House Republicans with a with a nine seat uh, majority. They picked up nine seats uh, less than they were hoping for. But in the end, they got a lot of the close races uh, their way at the very at the final final stretch. Uh, you know, look, this is this is the mirror image, as you said, of, of what Pelosi's majority looked like. And it's going to give Kevin McCarthy a hell of a time trying to get to that uh, speakership. He can only afford to lose, I believe, four House Republicans uh, in, in that leadership vote in January. But, you know, look, it, it does feel like we are a divided country. Whatever happens in Georgia t- tomorrow night in that Senate race, uh, you got a 50-50 Senate, 50-50 Senate, 51-49 Democratic advantage in the Senate. You've got a very narrowly divided majority. Two years ago, it was the Democrats that held held the House. Now it's the Republicans that have this narrow majority in the House. This is a divided America, and anyone who tries to go too far to the extreme, as we learned in the midterm elections, is going to pay a, a big political price. People uh, are not satisfied with either party, but they tend to go towards the candidates and the parties that are that are moving a little bit closer to the middle of the election, the middle of the electorate. Before we turn to Georgia and the Senate race that you mentioned and maybe a few other things, just to stick with the House for the moment, I think it's interesting. There were some pretty significant polling failures. We've seen them in recent cycles, including this one. Some polling successes. I look at the Real Clear Politics average on the generic ballot, which is basically all of the House races, which is the whole country, combined all of the votes 
if you did that, and this was the polling pre-election, the expectation was, on average, in the Real Clear Politics average, that Republicans were ahead by two and a half percentage points. And in fact, they did better than that, just a little bit, close to three percentage points is their margin of victory in the national picture when you add up all of those votes. They won by more than 3 million total votes, 54.4 million votes for Republicans, 51.3 million votes for the Democrats in those House races. And the popular vote on the House is not like a perfect metric. Obviously, it's a race-by-race proposition. And, Josh, I just keep coming back to this. Like, if you had told me before the election that Republicans were going to beat the real clear politics average in the national House popular vote, I would have confidently predicted a red wave. And yet, and you say, oh, yeah, the Republicans will win by 3 million votes, and they'll they'll win by three points nationally. I would have been like, oh, yeah, that's easy double-digit wins for the Republicans. They probably take the Senate as well, it, knowing just that data point. And yet that's not really what has played out, obviously, because even though they won all those votes, they weren't very efficiently distributed, so to speak, for the Republicans. Yeah, this was a very unusual midterm election in that we saw red waves in certain states like Florida or New York or Oregon or even California when you talk about the House races there. Uh, But we saw blue waves in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, potentially. Uh, You know, we we saw different ways, different environments in different states, which usually is not the case. Usually our politics have been much, much more nationalized over the last decade or two. Uh, the other big interesting dynamic, and it's something we've talked about on the show quite a bit, Guy, is that Republicans actually made some pretty notable inroads among Hispanic voters and black voters uh, in, in cities across the country. But the problem is they you know, kind of wasted those votes. Like if you look at some of the congressional districts in very safe Democratic parts of the country, Republicans actually did make inroads, except that well, you're not going to flip a, a, you know, a, a Newark, New Jersey congressional seat, or you're not going to flip the city of Philadelphia congressional seat, which have been overwhelmingly Democratic for so many years. Yet the swing seats, Democrats, did, they had better candidates. Republicans had weaker candidates in many of these races. And the biggest battleground states, especially when it comes to the Senate, battlegrounds ended up uh, being all Democratic overperformances. Well, and a lot of it was white suburbanites, right? College-educated suburbanites who, for many years, were not an overwhelming but somewhat reliable Republican constituency and group that has drifted left during Trump. And then the expectation was that they would toggle back to the right, as, frankly, a lot of them did in Virginia and New Jersey last year. But with a lot of the stuff floating around out there, that's not what happened. And a lot of them ended up sticking with the Democrats. And I think what the Republicans need to get their brains around now is, okay, how do we lock down our base, maintain and maybe build upon some of the inroads in non-traditional Republican communities, you know, like uh, African-Americans and Hispanics that you mentioned, and then also win back these swing, suburban, kind of center ish willing to be center-left, willing to be center-right, folks in the suburbs. That's the sweet spot where you have a coalition that can really do some damage and and win big time for the Republicans. But they got kind of two of those pieces, the inroads and the base mobilization, but not the swing suburban voters. And they've got to figure out a way to win those voters. And it's interesting because you mentioned 
what could be a blue wave in Georgia. I would say it it wouldn't be a blue wave because the Republicans really dominated statewide on election night. Big win for Brian Kemp, easy win for him. Secretary of State winning, I think, by double digits. It's just that Senate race, which is now being finally determined tomorrow in the runoff race, that could end up being, uh, you know, the the Democrats prevailing. Uh, And I would just point out there has not been a single incumbent senator from either party in the whole country who's lost. They've all won, even with all the dissatisfaction and anger. Every incumbent Republican won. I am convinced that if Pat Toomey had run for reelection, he would have been reelected against John Fetterman if that were the Democrat running against him. I think Toomey would have kept this streak of incumbents alive instead of that being an open seat. And if Raphael Warnock pulls this thing out tomorrow, he will close the books on the 2022 cycle without a single incumbent losing and only one seat changing partisan hands and only one governorship, by the way, an incumbent losing. That was out in Nevada where the Republicans gained that. A a lot of stability, weirdly, even though there's so much dissatisfaction in the country based on all of the polling. And Josh, I know you had an analysis at Axios about tomorrow's Georgia election. The polling seems to show a Warnock lead, uh, you know, modest, small lead, Herschel Walker's very much in the thing. It's going to, as they always say, come down to turnout. No question about that. But I think right now, based on the polling, at least, you'd rather be Warnock than Walker. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Republicans need to turn out in force tomorrow if you're listening to me in Georgia. What are you hearing from folks on the ground on both sides of the aisle about the Georgia runoff? Yeah, so a few points, uh, Guy. Number one, I I don't believe there's been a single poll in the runoff that show, at least a reputable poll, that has shown uh, Walker ahead. And that's not the way it was during the general election, where uh, Warnock finished a point ahead, about a point ahead of of, of Herschel Walker. So that that is one of the, the, I think, most significant tells, which is, you know, usually, I mean, sometimes polls can be wrong. Susan Collins can tell you that in Maine from 2020. But yeah, every poll has shown a, a small but resilient lead for, for Senator Warnock in, in the runoff phase of this election. Um, you know, but number two is that Senator Warnock has had a big money advantage in the runoff phase. Uh, Democrats are dramatically outspending Republicans. I think there's been a little bit of hesitation to, you know, to go all in, so to speak, for Herschel Walker, given some of the, the challenges he's faced on the campaign trail and some of the polls that I just referred to. Um, so there is a money advantage. Warnock has been one of the best fundraisers as well as a candidate which has allowed him to, to outspend and how to advertise uh, Herschel Walker. Uh, and even the outside groups haven't been able to make up the difference in, in fully. Um, and, and look, the, the final week of the campaign, Walker has not run a very aggressive operation. He's not been out and about to as many stops as, as Senator Warnock has been. Uh, and that stuff matters in a runoff to get your, your folks excited, to get them to the polls. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the polls are accurate. The polls were very uh, accurate in this 2022 midterm election, con- contrary to a lot of uh, skeptics' uh, perspectives in the run-up to November. And, look, I, th- I think fundamentals matter, and, and candidate quality matters. We learned that throughout November. And, you know, I think it would be somewhat of a surprise if if Walker uh, does come from behind to win this thing. Yeah. And the way that Walker wins this thing tomorrow is if the Warnock folks believe that they're going to win and they don't turn out quite at the levels that they need to. I see in the early vote, there's some some good news for the Democrats there, frankly. But maybe they're like, okay, we've got this thing now. And if there's a little bit of Uh, I guess, a a sense of inevitability that could end up hurting them, some complacency on the Democratic side, potentially. And then what you would need is Republicans just in force to show up in gigantic numbers tomorrow uh, to overcome what is likely a Warnock lead in the early voting. 
And that's how Walker does it. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's not impossible. It's not like, you know, it's not like Warnock's ahead by 10 points in this race. It's two, three points, something like that. That is make-upable, if you will. But it's going to take an enormous turnout by the Republicans today and tomorrow especially to make that happen. And we'll be watching and we will see. And the difference is a 50-50 Senate or a 51-49 Senate, uh, which does have some implications for the next two years and also affects the map and what needs to be done two years from now when the map is a lot more friendly, rather, to the Republicans in the Senate. So uh, that is the state of play in Georgia today. We'll be watching it tomorrow night. If you're listening to us now in Georgia, please do get out and vote. Josh Krasauer of Axios, Fox News contributor, our guest. Josh, happy birthday. Talk again soon. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back on the Guy Benson Show. Late last week, I think it was Thursday night, they had a state dinner for President Macron of France at the White House. And I know there was some controversy because they were sell- they were uh, serving, rather, Maine lobster. And I guess there are policies that the administration is pursuing that are actually very detrimental to that industry in Maine. So people are criticizing them for that, plus, you know, the look of it. During difficult economic times, I'm less concerned about the optics of serving lobster, more about the policies affecting lobster and whether that's hypocritical. The only image that actually bothered me coming out of the White House at the state dinner had nothing to do with the principles or the policies. It was one of the invited guests, a guest welcome with bells on at the White House for this fancy special event, Randy Weingarten, teachers union boss destroyer of education in so many ways, harmer of children, unapologetic, and the White House is just like double middle fingers to parents. Yep, we're with her. She's at this event. You're not. Vote of confidence for Randy Weingarten. That's what they believe. We should never forget that. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. Still to come on today's program, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg on Ukraine, Miranda Devine on the laptop and Twitter and that whole story. Can't wait to talk to her in the next hour. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here. Podcast is always free on demand after the show. GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. And catch me tonight on Special Report with Brett Bayer. I'm on the panel, quarter to seven or so, roughly. That is Eastern Time, of course, on Fox News Channel. Fox News alert as we begin this hour. The Dow falling precipitously today, down 482 points at the close, ending at 33,947. So it has dipped back below 34,000. And I think part of that is a lot of concerns about the economic outlook And recession fears ahead of 2023 sort of reignited again today for various reasons, some of the indicators that we've been talking about. So obviously it's a story that we are watching very closely here, not just the gyrations of the market, but the the bigger broad strokes on the economy. Dagan McDowell, one of our guests last week, talking about that here on the show. I want to talk about something here 
that I hadn't heard much about until I started to hear some rumors a couple days ago. And then at my Christmas party that we threw, Adam and I and the team, on Saturday night at the house, our annual Christmas party tradition, which was fantastic. Much more to come on that, by the way. At the end of the show today, a special longer edition of The Home Stretch, where we're going to talk about one incident particularly at the party that deserves a lot of attention. Uh, and then there's stories to tell. We're going to get some content here on the show out of the Christmas party. Let's put it that way. But at the Christmas party, one of my colleagues at townhall.com, Matt Vespa, he told me about what he was hearing involving a potential compromise being forged by a few senators on the issue of immigration. Now, we talk about the border crisis frequently here on the show. And as I've said before, I, until the last couple of years, have not ever really been a big immigration hawk. I've been what some might call a squish or a rhino or whatever on this issue for years, not fully as, you know, progressive or permissive as some others, but I was open to a number of things, a path to legal status for millions of illegal immigrants who are otherwise law-abiding living in the country, a DREAM Act, a lot of stuff in some sort of a, at least some kind of or sort of a package paired with enforcement. This is something that in the past has been appealing or worthwhile to me at least to debate and consider. Now, if you listen to the show regularly, you also know that I have become somewhat radicalized on the issue of immigration because of how bad it has gotten at the southern border. What a disgrace the border crisis has been under this president because of the policies of this president. It's not a coincidence. It's not bad luck. It's the incentives where there is a very clear method of coming to this country crossing the border illegally, getting detained briefly, processed and released for an end, for an indefinite amount of time with some future court date off in the future. Many of those people never show up for those court dates. And I see there's a dispute sometimes, oh, well, do 85 percent of them not show up or is the number 25 percent or is it closer to 50 percent? If you look at different metrics, it's somewhere in that range. Regardless, you're talking about millions of people not showing up for these hearings, and now they're just, quote-unquote, living in the shadows as illegal immigrants in the country waiting for an eventual amnesty, they hope. And meanwhile, along the way, the Biden administration is making as explicitly clear as possible to them that it will be very hard to deport them. Like just being discovered to be an illegal immigrant is not cause for deportation under this DHS, under their memos and their executive policies. In fact, they've put out policies, and we've covered them here, that you can be an illegal immigrant who crosses the border unlawfully, violating our national sovereignty. You don't show up, let's say, for your hearing, and you are then later convicted of any number of crimes that are sort of on the list where you get a free pass, or you can be convicted of additional crimes and still not eligible for deportation. They're sending a message. If you come here, there's a good likelihood you'll be able to stay. And if you don't commit further crimes or even just a few low-level crimes, 
we're going to make it as difficult as possible to remove you. That is an extremely powerful magnet to get people to come here illegally. And boy, is that magnet on. Right. The pull factors are extraordinary and the results are also extraordinary in the worst possible way. A total disaster. And it's going to get worse because Title 42, this covid era emergency expulsion tool, is one of the last things left that our agents are beaten down, demoralized, gutted, often impotent agents because of the political leadership which smears the agents sometimes, by the way, when it aligns with the political moment. We saw that with the whole fake whipping gate thing. One of the last tools that they still have left in a meaningful way to quickly and rapidly expel people, illegal immigrants from the country, basically instantly, is Title 42, which is a pandemic-era emergency tool. That's the process. And what the Biden team is saying is the COVID emergency is over. Except when they want the COVID emergency not to be over, for example, on student loans, where those emergency, I would say, illegal things that they're doing, they are still justifying those under the COVID emergency. So it's still alive for this reason over here, but not for that reason over there. We've talked about all this stuff. I'm just sort of resetting the conversation. I would just also add, as we reported last week and we were citing our colleague Bill Malugin, it's getting worse. Right? They set a record in October for illegal crossings in October. We'll get the finalized November numbers soon, but we have the Godaway numbers for October and November, the first two months of the new fiscal year. It is roughly 135,000 known Godaways in those two months alone. 64,000 record setting in October, and then even worse, 74,000 plus in November. These are the Godaways that we know of. They're detected on cameras or motion sensors or someone sees them. But we don't have the wherewithal, the personnel, the resources to go get them and detain them. Probably because a lot of our Border Patrol agents have been redirected to be basically like secretaries, pencil pushers, processing people who have in many cases surrendered themselves. They want to get caught. They want to get processed. They want to get released into the country. That's the game plan. Title 42 allows a lot of the folks to be sent back pretty quickly, but that is going away later on this month. They've delayed it a few times, but the Biden people are saying yes, under big pressure from their left flank. Title 42 is going to end. When I was down at the border, we did the show from the border a couple months ago. One of the number one things I heard from law enforcement and border enforcement down there was if and when Title 42 goes away, absent any major changes to Biden policy, This bad situation, like historically bad, is going to get even worse. It's already overwhelmed and unsustainable. It's going to get worse. And we're seeing the buildup toward that already happening. 64,000 known gotaways, 70 or 63, was it? 63, 64, 73,000 last month. These are the known gotaways. You wonder how many people within that group who want to evade detection, who aren't seeking out officials to surrender themselves, You wonder how many of them are convicted felons, members of gangs, cartels, suspected terrorists. That's the other number that we keep seeing among the people that actually get caught, not the people who don't. That's the backdrop to these rumors and now some reporting. 
as I mentioned, my colleague Matt Vespa, townhall.com, also citing the Washington Post. The senators involved in this potential compromise are Democrat Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Republican Tom Tillis of North Carolina. Now, if you know me, you probably know that as far as Democrats go, I kind of have a fondness for Kirsten Sinema in Arizona, even though her base hates her because she's taken a few tough votes up against the Democratic leadership and the Democratic base, even though overall she's a liberal and a Democrat and rather progressive in a lot of ways. She hasn't gone along with everything. So they hate her for that. And I respect some of what she's done and the way that she's sort of maintained her dignity and grace, even when they're chasing her into bathrooms, like hounding her with cameras and stuff, these left wing activists. And I also like Senator Tillis. Sort of a, you know, moderate-ish conservative from a purple-red state in North Carolina. He's been on this program multiple times. He just got reelected two years ago in 2020. I like Tillis. I also am the type of person who is open to bipartisan compromise. Right? I'm not one of these, you know, enemy of compromise, pound-the-table, right-wing, fire-breathing, dragon radio host who's going to say anything that they might do together must be bad. Let's say no. Let's distort it. I know that a lot of people go that direction, and I'm not saying that they don't deeply or fervently believe it in many cases. In some cases, I think it's sort of a bit of a character that's being played. But look, everyone has a right to use their platform as they see fit. I'm someone who's open to some compromise. In fact, I did a whole lengthy monologue Last week on the show about the Respect for Marriage Act, a compromise, bipartisan, improved in the Senate, and I explained why I'm in favor of it, why I hope that even more Republicans will vote for it uh, when it bounces back to the House in the coming days. All right, so I'm the type of person who would at least theoretically be the target audience for Tillis and Cinema in this compromise that's being discussed. And there's like a white paper that... Some reporters have seen a potential blueprint circulating for what this compact might look like, this deal. And in theory, in a vacuum, it's kind of reasonable in a number of ways. It would offer, and this is very vague, it would offer some form of path to citizenship for two million dreamers. So these are people brought here as young kids, no fault of their own. This is the only country they've ever known. I'm in favor of a dream act at least in isolation, in a vacuum, and even practicality for a long period of time. I have paused my support for any of this because of what I just described, this crisis that we're seeing. But what the Democrats would get out of this on their end is some form of path to citizenship amnesty for 2 million dreamers. And there would also be a large boost in resources to speed up the processing of asylum seekers, which is taking forever. New processing centers, new officers, new judges. Maybe we don't have to pull Border Patrol off of the front lines to do this stuff. Or what was it, like air marshals? We saw that report last week as well where they're taking them out of the skies to go do you know paperwork down at the border. So expediting this stuff, that makes sense to me. It would continue Title 42 for at least a year, and it would be still in place until these processing – Systems are in place and operational for, you know, at least a year, perhaps more. So that would avert more of a disaster. 
at least forestall it, right? So I'm open to that. That makes sense. There'd be funding for more border officers. Fine. Let's have more enforcement. And so there's there's some appeal there and some give and take. And I think generally that's how legislation and the legislative process ought to work. But here's my answer on this proposal, even as it might be in its infancy and and not really fully formed yet. No. That's my answer. No. The border crisis is such a mess, such an avoidable, intentionally inflicted mess based on terrible, deliberate policies that I have no interest in Republicans giving Democrats any concession that even smells even a faint bit like an amnesty until meaningful enforcement happens, is confirmed, and is shown to be sustainable and stable for a significant period of time. Enforcement must come first. It can't be part of some marriage thing and we'll get some enforcement, but we're going to do this amnesty and we'll pair them together. And it seems like the enforcement stuff often gets the short end of the stick and doesn't quite materialize the way that it needs to. Given the damage being done, they need to fix the problem and get some handle on this first during this historic crisis before they get any sort of political reward for what they're doing. So in theory, under different circumstances, I would be interested perhaps in this. Let's see the details. Right now, as things stand, hard no for me. With respect to both of the senators that I mentioned, Cinema, and especially Tillis as the Republican in this thing, no. And I'm not usually one to take that line But for the reasons that I've outlined, that's where I'm at right now. Let's see the enforcement meaningfully first. Then we can talk about other things potentially down the line and not a minute sooner. With that, we'll break. We'll come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're not just going to sit there um, and, and, and take no for an answer, and so we're going to figure out what we can do. So that's what we're doing today. Uh, we want to cut through bureaucracy. Uh, we want to bring relief to impacted Floridians, regardless of whether FEMA uh, wants to be a part of that. So today I'm announcing Florida will be providing up to $25 million through state funds to purchase building materials and provide those materials to verified nonprofit organizations to restore damaged homes to livable conditions so that Floridians can move back into their own homes. I'm Guy Benson. That was Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida announcing this initiative, $25 million in state money, because he's accusing the Biden administration's FEMA of denying at least some of the emergency funds requests on this front. So it sounds like he's going to keep pushing the feds on this, but meantime, taking some of the taxpayer money in Florida to help people in need down there. And I would like to get more details on this allegation against FEMA and why they're saying they won't fulfill some of these requests. But I will juxtapose that story with this Wall Street Journal piece, an investigative piece, 
out yesterday. Billions in COVID aid went to hospitals that didn't need it. And the story details how some of the recipients of federal money just flowing out the door in this emergency of COVID went to large, wealthy hospitals that didn't actually need the money and used the money for things that had nothing to do with COVID, like expanding their facilities or even putting money into investment funds. Whereas other hospitals that were failing and struggling financially didn't get more money and were laying off actual first responders and nurses and that sort of thing. The government is not great at allocating resources is one of the eternal truths of American politics. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. A new broadcast week on The Guy Benson Show, and we're halfway through today's program. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is on demand and free every day. With us now is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, a Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, and former Chief of Staff to the National Security Council during the Trump administration. His book is entitled War by Other Means. And, General, it's good to have you back here. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, Guy, thanks for having me today. I do appreciate it. I saw a story yesterday, I believe it was, that some U.S. officials and intelligence assessments now believe that the Russians are expending so much ammunition in their war against Ukraine that they are not going to be able to replace that ammo anytime soon and are therefore just blowing through some of their stockpiles What do you make of that? Does that sound right to you? And does that have longer term implications for their ability to sustain or resume a very substantial barrage against Ukraine in the months ahead? Yeah, Guy, look, there's reports right now from the people I've talked to that the Russia is firing about 20,000 artillery rounds a day. That is a staggering amount. And the fact that they're using, they're having to go elsewhere to get things like drones from Iran or ammunition from North Korea, it means their their stocks have really come down. One of the more telling things which they did recently was there's a report that they are refurbishing 800 T-62 tanks to be used uh, in Ukraine or against Ukraine. Now, for the most, most part, people would say, well, okay, so what? The T-62 was taken out of the Russia's military you know, order of battle in 1975. So the the tank is 45 years old. It doesn't have the good uh, accuracy. Doesn't have the good tank gun on it. It's a 115 caliber. It's a it's a four man crew vice a three man crew. There's a lot of things. It doesn't have improved armor on it. That is telling me that it's sort of the tell that the Russians are having enormous modernization problems and equipping problems that's going to affect them long term. What does that mean? It means in the long term, if I'm NATO, I'm sitting back there going, well, they're not going to invade NATO because they don't have the military capacity and capability to do so. Um, they they are really stretching and bringing 300 reservists in. I've been in situations where you bring reservists in. They're just hard to train them. It takes a longer time to train them. They need to get trained up and, and kitted to go forward. Uh, the reports I'm getting is their winter kit uh, is nowhere as good as the winter kit the Ukrainians have. The Ukrainians are, in fact, using our the West winter kit from Finland and from Norway, from the United States, which is really a pretty good kit. When you get into the winter months, Guy, it, it's hard on material. It's hard on people. It's not any fun to work in the wintertime. Imagine yourself to change, trying to change a tire uh, up in New England 
uh, on a snowy day versus a summer day, and you kind of get the feeling how hard it is to do do things. So they they've got some major problems out there. I think what Putin's hoping for is that the winter months will allow him to settle down, refit, rearm, to be ready to go on the offense. And that's the reason I think it's important that Ukraine needs to keep the pressure on him, uh, keep pushing him back and pushing him back. So he has to make harder and harder decisions on what he's going to do in the near term and also the long term. So, yeah, it's a long answer to a short question. Yeah, They've got some enormous problems militarily, uh, and it's really clear. And, and the closing thing, uh, comment is their military was not equipped what I mean intellectually equipped to fight this war. They violated every principle of war I ever grew up with, and now they're trying to refit and rearm, and they're fighting the same old way they fought recently in Ukraine, and it's, it's a failed mission. I did see earlier reports on the news channel and across news media that the Russians have once again fired a huge barrage of missile attacks against Ukraine. So they are continuing to attack in various ways. This is part of the reason why I think the West and the United States should continue to equip and train the Ukrainians to defend themselves. We're not asking Americans to risk their lives with boots on the ground. We are trying to help the Ukrainians defeat and embarrass the Russians, which would not only have an implication for the Russians, obviously, but also to other thuggish authoritarian regimes in the future. If they're thinking about launching some sort of war of aggression, they might look back as a cautionary tale and think twice before they do something like that if Ukraine wins. And that is the part that I wanted to dig in just a little bit more, because if you believe, as you just said, General, that the Russians are going to have a very difficult winter ahead where it's going to be cold, they're going to have low morale, poor equipment, these bad wintertime kits waiting for these refurbished tanks that are significantly older than I am to maybe show up in the battlefield to become potentially death traps for them in the future. That is not a good combination for them. I would imagine that perhaps the Russians would try to basically hit the pause button on this war for a while. This is just my theory. Effectively pause the war to try to retrench and regroup and survive until the spring when things get warmer again. Would that be, and you sort of hinted at this, all the more reason for the Ukrainians to plan aggressive counterattacks, to not let them have that moment to catch their breath and to hunker down? Yeah, Guy, I think if you defeat the Russian army, you defeat Putin. Putin falls. And I, and I think he knows that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I believe they should keep the offensive effort going, because the end state isn't just a destruction of the Russian army, but the, the, the Russian oligarchy, they're not going to accept the fact of a Russian failure to, to Ukraine, uh, and, and if they can defeat the army to do it. And here's how I think they can do it. And, it, and I, it not only supply the equipment, which is important, but that would cause our president to go to our industry and say to him, you need to go to almost to a wartime footing. What I mean by that is don't just do eight hours a day, five days a week. You've got to go 24 hours a day, get this equipment out, keep producing this equipment out there. We're giving you the money to do it. Uh, it's, it's sort of like the COVID vaccine effort, except in military effort, and tell our industrial base to continue to produce this, uh, because we are, in fact, a proxy to this war, not putting troops on the ground, but putting the equipment there. So that's one set. The second set that you want to do is you tell the Ukrainians, and I read a report, and I don't know how true it is, that they've actually got a lodgment above Kherson across the, the Dnipro River, which would be significant if they could do that. And that's where the pressure needs to be put, because I know there's fighting up in Luhansk in the Donbass region 
perfect as well. But the real critical area everybody needs to look at, and what I said you need to look at, is you need to look at Crimea. Because if Crimea, if they can put pressure on Crimea, and Crimea falls or the Russian army falls in, in that area, then I think you're going to see just not Putin have to negotiate. I think it's at the, at the end of Vladimir Putin. Here's how you do that. And we've been very hesitant to do this. We've, as it sounds, it, we have not given the Ukrainians all of the weaponry that we should be giving them to do that. For example, there's a missile called the Attackums missile. It fits into uh, the HIMAR system. You fire one and fire, it's got a pretty good range. It's got five times the range of the, the current MRS system. It's, it's basically, you know, when you look at it, almost 200 miles range. If you can get that across the river, the Dnieper River into Crimea, then you put the Black Sea Fleet at risk. Then you put Crimea at risk. Then you put all of his, you know, his uh, industrial base at risk that's in that area. And we need to understand that this is a war, and the wars need to be fought aggressively. Is there risk? Of course there is. But for every risk, there's opportunity. So we shouldn't just be saying, well, we kind of want you to fight. We're not going to give you quite everything because we're nervous about it. Just go all in. And I think President Trump, President Biden should pick up the phone. I know he hasn't talked to Putin and say, this is what we're going to do. And let Putin be made aware of what we intend to do. And then it's up to Putin. If you want to keep fight, fight. Or do you want to now kind of say, well, this war needs to be an ending now because of all the civilians being killed and the cities being destroyed. I think, you know, our president needs to go to that president, to Putin, and say, this is where we're going. Because right now, Putin doesn't really know what we're doing. What I mean by that is he doesn't know, are we going to go all in, not go all in? Make it very clear to him. We're going to go all in, along with the alliance, to defeat the Russian army. And this is the way it's going to be in the near term because I don't what I don't want to give him guy is time to reset and refit and rearm and if we don't keep pushing in winter that's exactly what he'll do and all you can find is another stalemate or we're going to be into the spring and the summer months again yeah and it's really a protracted difficult time for the Ukrainians of course they're still getting shelled on a regular basis the Russians don't care about killing civilians they're happy to do that they're knocking out power and heat. I've read accounts of surgeons performing surgery by candlelight and flashlight in some cases because the electricity is out. There are water issues. I mean, the Ukrainians have done an incredible job, and the Russians have been embarrassed to this point. But it's not like things are going great for the people of Ukraine either. And it's important for us to remember that as well, especially as it gets colder and darker over there. Last question, General, and this is on a different topic. We were talking last week on this program with U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, and she said some Republicans might be holding up the NDAA, the big defense spending bill, on the issue of the vaccine mandate, the COVID vaccine mandate. And I know that the military has argued that having all the troops vaccinated is a preparedness issue. On the other side of it, if you're losing people because they don't want to get vaccinated, especially younger, healthier people, and you're already having trouble with your recruitment numbers, to put it mildly, I know you and I have talked about that here before. I'm not sure if this is a requirement or a mandate that continues to make sense. And that, of course, also raises its own preparedness and readiness issues for the military. What's your view on this? Yeah, it, my view, guys, it's pretty simple. We have now realized that the COVID vaccine does not prevent getting COVID. It doesn't. Unlike things like smallpox, vaccine that you have to take in the military. We used to take and they took, we redid it, started again in the, the first Gulf War, that does prevent it. Or you've got the your cholera or, or um, 
vaccines like that, those we know prevent it. The vaccine doesn't. We've known that from people getting it because they've had a vaccine and they get it once, twice, three times. And so far, we know that we've lost over 3,000 Marines, over 18, almost 2,000 soldiers, and 2,000 sailors have been discharged for refusing the vaccination. And those aren't the ones that did it because of religious purposes, because the federal courts have blocked uh, the federal government from punishing personnel who have refused a vaccine uh, on religious grounds. So I, I, I would tell them, look, it, it's just get off it. Just basically say we're not going to require it anymore. Leave it alone because it's going to cause problems in recruiting. It still is. And it's also an emotional issue. And kind of get off it and not not worry about it. My problem is that I know it's, uh, you know, Representative McCarthy said that uh, soon to be, the, you know, the Speaker of the House, I hope. We'll see how that goes. Uh but but bottom line, just say when he had this agreement supposedly in the White House that he said the president said he was going to do it. I said the president only said he was going to consider doing it, and he would. That's the only thing he agreed to do, and that means if Secretary of Defense Austin says I don't want to do it, which he said he doesn't want to withdraw the requirement, then the probability of that happening isn't there. Um, I just think it's a fool's errand. They shouldn't have done it in the first place. It was a political issue in the first place, and just kind of leave it alone, let it die. And 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 I think it's going to help the a lot of the people in the military decide to stay in or come into the military right now. But right now, it's become a very political issue, and I just think it's a huge mistake. Retired Lieutenant General and Fox News contributor Keith Kellogg, my guest here on the Guy Benson Show. General, always good to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks, Guy. I appreciate you having me. And the Guy Benson Show will resume after this short break. Don't go anywhere. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you all here listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, always free. And tomorrow, I'll be heading up to New York City for a bunch of television duties Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So doing the program from our HQ up in the Big Apple the next couple of days. And I am curious to see on the train ride up to New York what the mask-wearing situation is going to be aboard the train. Because Dan has been telling us on his commute he's seeing a lot more masks. Christine, when you're on the bus or the train, what's your estimate? Like, are half of the people wearing masks again? I would say... At least half. The other day, I looked around the train, and it looked like I was the crazy one not wearing a mask. People were staring at me. Hmm. So, look, I don't begrudge someone wearing a mask if that's what they want to do, and you don't know everyone's personal story or whatever. I think a lot of the masks out there actually aren't very useful against COVID, and we've known that for a very long time. I've had an issue with the mandates and the requirements, especially for kids. I'm against that. If you're an adult and you want to do this, For whatever reason, I mean, fine. I just don't want that to be imposed. And you're starting to hear some officials in local areas. I saw Los Angeles County, for example, already making noises about resuming mandates if community spread gets to a certain level. And it's just like this Groundhog Day feeling. And I was reminded of the overall issue when I saw a tweet from a woman who I guess over the weekend went to go see a production of A Christmas Carol at Ford's Theater here in Washington, D.C., famously the theater where President Lincoln was shot. It is still an active theater. It's a very cool place. If you're ever in D.C. or visiting here, I do recommend getting to see Ford's Theater. There's a museum in the basement. The house where the former president was treated by the doctor and I believe died is right across the street. 
and it is still a theater that puts on productions year-round. And for years, it has been a tradition that they put on A Christmas Carol this time of year. And I had gone to see it a few different times. It's very charming. It's very uplifting. They sing and intersperse throughout the show because it's a play, but they sing some very traditional Christmas carols and English Christmas carols, which is fun. They have some little fake snow that falls from the ceiling at the end. Everyone, I believe, if I recall correctly, stands and sings We Wish You a Merry Christmas together at the end. And it really has helped put me in the spirit of the season in years past. I finally, after a few years of hiatus, went again last year with my family, brought them after Thanksgiving. We all went. We had a nice time. But it was a little bit weird because due to COVID, quote unquote, they didn't have any of the children actors involved. And just don't get me started. We already know that kids overwhelmingly are the safest demographic from COVID. If you're going to bar anyone from being in the production, maybe the older or more elderly cast members who are at higher risk, that's where you would start. Not the lowest risk kids, but that's what they did. So there were no kids in the show. Tiny Tim, if I recall now, was played last year at the show that we went to go see by like a 50-year-old guy who was like six foot four or something. That was your Tiny Tim. And they explained why, and it was a COVID thing, and they hoped that we would all understand. It was a little bit weird. It was not scientifically based to have the kids not participating. But I was like, all right, it's just nice to be back in a theater. There was one cast member who wore a mask on stage the whole time, which was admittedly very distracting. The point of live theater is to sort of get immersed and get transported to another place And to just live in that moment and suspend sort of your outside thinking. And then to see someone, one person on stage with a mask was strange. And this woman that I saw on Twitter just the other day, I guess she saw it over the weekend. And she said roughly a third of the cast was wearing masks this time. So the mask wearing has increased in 2022 compared to 2021 within this particular production. And I just think for the amount of money that they charge, it just doesn't make sense to me. I would not go see that. And if you are someone who is that concerned about COVID and you think that masks really help and are necessary, I'm just not sure this is the right line of work for you. So I hate to, like, dump on Forge Theater or Christmas Carol. It's something that I've gotten a lot of joy from through the years. But if this is what they're doing and this is the type of production that they're putting on, with one out of every three actors or so wearing a mask on the stage during the show, like, that is a hard pass for me. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Miranda Devine will be joining us on the laptop story, the updates and developments from Twitter over the weekend, and then a very special extended home stretch at the back half of next hour that you do not want to miss, a big mystery on the Guy Benson Show that we will be telling you all about. Stay tuned. That final hour is next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Guy Benson. 
It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Special Report with Brett Baer. I'll be on the panel toward the end of the show. That's on Fox News Channel. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious. It went flying off the shelves at my Christmas party over the weekend. All of it gone, I think, by around 11 p.m. Check it out for yourself if you haven't already. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only, thelongdrink.com. Joining us now is Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, and author of the book Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech, and the Dirty Secrets the President Tried to Hide. And, Miranda, it's good to have you back here. Great to be with you, Guy. All right, so over the weekend, obviously, we got this big... Revelation. It was on Friday night. Elon Musk had been promising a lot of details about how the story that you wrote your book about was suppressed on that platform that he now owns. Give us, in your mind, a summary of the most important findings. Was anything revelatory in your mind, something that you didn't know yet? And what are the takeaways that you think average voters ought to think about as they consider what's happened? Look, to me, the most intriguing part of the the Twitter dump on Friday was what it left out. Um, The the most crucial bit, I think, is the FBI's involvement in pre-bunking our story and going to the social media platforms and warning them in their weekly meetings before the 2020 election to look out for um, a dump of of Russian disinformation in October... um, probably about Hunter Biden. And the reason we know that is because Twitter um, former top executive, Yoel Roth, who was head of site integrity, uh, wrote a sworn declaration saying that in their weekly meetings with the FBI, the FBI told Twitter that there was going to be a hack and leak operation, likely in October, involving Hunter Biden and that they should immediately uh, realise that this was not legitimate, that this was hacked material. And sure enough, when we published the Hunter Biden laptop story on October 14, 2020, Twitter censored it, locked our account, said that we were in violation of their, quote, hacked material policy. It wasn't hacked, it wasn't true, but the FBI had had Hunter Biden's laptop in their possession for almost a year. They knew it wasn't hacked. They knew it wasn't Russian disinformation. Uh, They had been given it by the computer repair shop owner, John Paul MacIsaac, whose store in Delaware Hunter had abandoned his laptop at. Um, And John Paul MacIsaac had looked at it when it became his legal possession and had become concerned about national security implications of the material he saw, particularly in relation to Ukraine and China. He was worried about this. So he went to the FBI and he told them about his concerns. They dismissed him at first. Finally, they turned up at his store with a subpoena for the laptop and for a hard drive copy he'd made of the laptop. 
But luckily, he'd kept a copy. And when the FBI, first of all, warned him as they were leaving that nothing bad happens to people who keep their mouths shut, I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist of what they told him, he grew concerned. And as the months went by and he realised that nothing had been done with his material that he'd handed over, this laptop, he decided that he would start trying to contact Republican members of Congress. And they didn't respond to his emails. Rudy Giuliani responded when he emailed him. On August 24, he emailed Rudy Giuliani with chapter and verse of what he'd seen in the laptop and his concerns. And it just so happened that the FBI was spying on Rudy Giuliani's cloud during 2020 with a covert surveillance warrant. So they would have had access to that email from John Paul MacIsaac. So they knew in August of 2020 that this story was going to come out. So then they went to the social media companies and they said to them, listen, this is roughly what you're going to see. It's going to be Russian disinformation. It'll, it'll mention Hunter Biden. Be prepared for it and make sure that you censor it. Basically, that's what they did. They pre-bunked it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Miranda, because obviously at the New York Post, you guys ended up running with this story, which then was suppressed, censored. The Post was punished by Twitter, suspended from that platform for weeks, the country's oldest newspaper, for publishing what turned out to be an accurate story based on information that you're saying the FBI knew was authentic and real, but had pre-budded it basically with these platforms ahead of time. Why? Why would they do that? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, Hunter Biden was already under federal investigation by that point, wasn't he? And do you suspect, and this is just conjecture, but do you suspect that if this guy who owned this laptop repair store, if he hadn't blown the whistle and come to the press and gone to folks like Rudy and others, that the FBI would have perhaps sat on that evidence, sat on that laptop forever? We never would have found out about it? Yeah, I, I, I think that's the case. We know from FBI whistleblowers that they did sit on the laptop, that they prevented anyone in the FBI, any other investigators from looking at it, from investigating it. There was a cabal inside the Washington field office that basically suppressed any detrimental information to, to about Joe Biden before the 2020 election. And that included the five-hour interview that they did uh, when Tony Bobolinsky came forward to the FBI with his concerns about Joe Biden and his involvement in China. Tony Bobolinsky, of course, one of Hunter Biden former business partners who had two meetings with Joe Biden about doing this China deal. Um, and so he also, Tony Bobolinsky, handed over the contents of three of his phones to the FBI before the 2020 election. And yet that information as well, we're told by whistleblowers, was suppressed. And the FBI told Tony Bobolinsky's lawyer that, that night after his interview that they would be back in touch. They never contacted him again. And Tony Bobolinsky never was called as a witness uh, to that grand jury investigation into Hunter Biden that was going on in Delaware. So, Miranda, do uh, we have a, just to jump in, do we have any update on what the status of that investigation is? Because it had been going on for, I believe, well over a year. There was speculation that it was expanding, at least reporting that it was expanding. Then the speculation that they were pausing it because of the election. Would we perhaps get I don't know, an indictment or some sort of update sometime soon, or are we just sort of flying blind? Well, we ought to. Um, it's interesting that we've had Hunter Biden 
um, has been staying in the White House since the middle of November, at least. Uh, you know, his daughter's wedding. Then, then he went to Nantucket with his parents or his, his father and Jill Biden. Um, and then he came back. He was at the White House again, presumably staying at the White House. He went to all the functions in the White House last week. And then again, he was uh, he went to Camp David um, with the president on the weekend. He was seen coming off um, Marine One on Sunday with his father and also his wife and his child. Um, and so... Who knows? We, we don't have any visibility into what goes on at Camp David, the visitors in and out, nor to um, the homes in Delaware that Joe Biden retreats to most weekends, often with Hunter. So we don't know what kind of meetings they've had, who has been, you know, lawyers or strategists um, have visited to war game what they're going to do. But you can, you can be sure that with this um, intense... Uh, sort of two-week period when Hunter Biden's been holed up with his father, that they will have been discussing how they deal with this. Now, I'm told, I don't know if this is correct or not, but I'm told from various sources um, about this Delaware grand jury, which is very tight, there's not a lot of leaking coming from it, um, that, in fact, uh, that they wanted to do a plea, plea bargain with uh, Hunter Biden and where he would cop a fine and a suspended sentence for, you know, this tax evasion and so on, um, and that he refused. Now, I don't know if that's right, but that's certainly um, what's being said. And so perhaps his father is trying to convince him to accept the plea deal because otherwise, um, you know, they'll have to go ahead to an indictment and that's really not what the White House would want. But the other thing that they're discussing, obviously, is how do they handle this upcoming Republican series of investigations into Hunter Biden's laptop, but with the focus being on Joe Biden and whether or not he's compromised by the millions of dollars that flowed through to his family from their long-standing influence peddling scheme, particularly throughout Joe Biden's vice presidency. And we know that there are at least three very well-funded dark money groups that are working on opposition research on all the Republicans who are investigating this Hunter Biden story. Um, they've, they've got tens of millions of dollars uh, for, for basically defending Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Miranda Devine, stand by. I have a few more questions about this. Let's get to them as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Miranda Devine is with us on The Guy Benson Show. So a couple more points here. Number one, you mentioned Yoel Roth, the former Twitter executive. I saw a video of him just recently talking about the Babylon Bee, which is a very funny satirical website. My buddy Seth Dillon owns it. And they were suspended for months from Twitter because they were, quote unquote, transphobic by, quote unquote, misgendering someone. And Mr. Roth at a public forum said that he finds the Babylon Bee not funny, but also dangerous for this reason. And just sort of justifying the censorship that Twitter engaged in against the Babylon Bee, he's now out. But he had a very influential position at Twitter for a very long time. He also tweeted a bunch of very partisan left-wing stuff. That was the type of person who was supposed to be an arbiter, a fair-minded arbiter of this stuff. Clearly he is anything but. And I think just the little nuggets and morsels that we're getting really underscore, as I said earlier, 
that the Twitter team, as it existed at the time, they were who we thought they were. And the little drip, drip, drip of information that they put out on Friday night that we're learning more and more about, and apparently there's more to come. I also found it instructive, Miranda, that, number one, some of the journalists who were talking about it, particularly Matt Taby, who was for a long time a journalist in good standing on the left among all of his buddies, they've turned on him hard because he is digging into this stuff. Uh, and I think that that is a bit of a tell on their part, not a reflection on him. And then the other thing I just wanted to get your reaction to, Miranda, is a point that I've made on social media and here on the show as well. It's just sort of fascinating and a bit creepy to me how seamlessly a lot of these people go from this is not authentic material, this is Russian disinformation, and it must be censored because of that, to, well, actually the reason that it needs to be censored and needed to be censored in the first place was it was authentic, but there were nude photographs and images of the president's son, so that's pornography. That's why it needed to be censored. Those are not the same argument. It's not the same to say this is planted by the Russians and fake versus this is too real and lewd and the end point, regardless, is censorship. It's just the explanations and excuses that change instantaneously as it seems like the politics require. Yes. Well, I mean, you have to understand that they are creating these diversions. They're creating their own disinformation operation about the laptop story um, to try and um, persuade the public that there's nothing to see here. So that's why they've slipped so smoothly into the, oh, it was, you know, porn, it was... Um, nude photos. No, we did not publish any nude photos from the laptop. We had the laptop. We published the information from it first. We focused on the uh, problems that Joe Biden had with his lie to the American people during the campaign that he knew nothing about his son Hunter's overseas business dealings. At all. So right. we, he said nothing at, at all. all. Nothing at all. He said it repeatedly. He said it emphatically. He snarled at any reporter who asked him. So that was just unequivocal. And we had an email that we published on October 14, 2020, from Hunter Biden's Ukrainian benefactor, who was giving him a million dollars a year to sit on the board, even though he had no experience. And he had written in an email to thank Hunter Biden in 2015 for introducing him to his father, the vice president, in Washington, D.C. And that was um, at least required the Biden campaign to explain why they met with this guy. Did they meet with this guy? Uh, why were they... Why, why did he invite him to Washington? Um, so, you know, what we got instead was stonewalling. We got the... The Biden administration, the Biden campaign, sorry, refused to answer questions. They lied about it. They repeatedly, they told different stories to some reporters and different stories to others. And, well, then and they, finally, went, they uh, also went loudly with the Russian disinformation line that everyone just sort of obeyed on the media side. And the stonewalling, this is the thing that really, I think, bothers me more than anything else, Miranda, is you would expect a political campaign to stonewall and to deceive it's the degree to which the mainstream media and journalists are not just willing to go along with the suppression and the stonewalling and be a part of it. They seem outright enthusiastic about doing so, and they've made it clear that any of their colleagues who might actually treat this like a real story at any point of this entire process, they would be treated as 
sort of disreputable as a result, that is to me the component of this that maybe is most insidious. That and then some of the FBI stuff that you mentioned obviously is right up there too. I'll give you the last word quickly. Well, it's all connected uh, because you've basically got capture of the sort of previously prestige media, whether it's the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, CBS, NBC, uh, by the Democratic Party, by the intelligence agencies. So you had Adam Schiff going on CNN, MSNBC, uh, briefing um, New York Times, Washington Post um, about our story, the Hunter Biden laptop story, saying it was a smear that comes from the Kremlin. And, you know, Wolf Blitzer on CNN and Chuck Todd on MSNBC just lapped it up and kept on inviting him back, just like they did when he was lying about the Russian collusion hoax, just like when he was lying about the Trump um impeachment with Ukraine. Um, And there was no consequences for his lies. And he was the chairman, or is, of the House Intelligence Committee. He's entrusted to oversight the nation's intelligence agencies. At the same time, you have, um, I don't know whether the entire FBI is corrupt or it's a cabal in the Washington field office. but they also. I would say there's at least an element that needs to answer a lot of questions, and maybe some of those questions will be posed under oath by Republicans now that they are going to control the House of Representatives starting next month. But that word collusion got tossed around a lot. There was some serious collusion on this story to bury it. And now that it's all really out there in the open and coming to light, the collusion is continuing in its own way, I'd say in a very ham fisted sort of way. And it is quite something to watch. And someone who is watching it closer, perhaps, than anyone else is Miranda Devine, columnist at The New York Post, Fox News contributor, and her book is Laptop from Hell. Miranda, always appreciate your time. Thank you. You too, Guy. Thanks. The Guy Benson Show is back after this. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It is a very special extended home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show, Monday edition. Podcast free every day on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. Other ways to get it as well, of course. We tell you all about them all the time. I'll be on special report coming up in the next hour on the panel with Brett Bayer and company. Looking forward to that. We'll see you on Fox News Channel. By the way, I do have to say that soccer is now officially gone for the next four years. At least as far as I'm concerned. Team USA losing to the Netherlands on Saturday morning. And so we can now just sort of fold up shop on soccer until 2026 if Team USA makes it to the World Cup. And I know my soccer fan friends were mad at me because I was tweeting about this and posting about how boring this was for me. And they can try to convince me that this was exciting and fun. It's just not going to work. Team USA played four games resulting in two ties. They scored a total of three goals in those four games, and then they were bounced in the first knockout game that they had. And, of course, there was that scintillating 0-0 tie against England. So bye-bye soccer. I flipped the channel straight over to American football, Big 12 championship game, lots of excitement there. The playoff is now set, and that's the football that we will be focused on here when we talk sports on the Guy Benson Show. We had the games on, the SEC championship game, then the Big Ten championship game, won by Georgia and Michigan, respectively, on Saturday evening. 
and Georgia and Michigan will be one and two in the top four playoff, rounded out by TCU and Ohio State. Both of those games were on in the background at our Christmas party over the weekend. We told you about it repeatedly on the show. We were building up to the big party, annual tradition. This was by far our biggest one ever. It was right on the verge at its peak, I would say right around 10 p.m. At its peak, it was on the verge of being too crowded. A few more people, if they had shown up, I would have said, okay, that's too much. But we kept it just beneath that threshold, had a great time. We love seeing so many people. Some friends of mine surprised me. They came in from out of town, Mitch and Carolyn. I just had a fabulous night. It's a lot. It is definitely a bit of a blowout bash, but we love it that way, and we are just so happy that so many people came and had a great time, including producer Christine, her husband Bobby, and Quiet Wyatt. They were all there for a good long period of time, although they showed up later than I was expecting. And apparently there's a whole series of stories about producer Christine's evening before the party, perhaps even after the party, and I haven't heard some of these stories. I know there was something involving her purse that she alleged had been stolen. Spoiler alert, it had not. And a few other things. And we're going to get into perhaps some of those details from Wyatt and maybe Christine, who's a less reliable source, I would say, on this, given she's sort of the subject of some of the stories and controversies and drama. But we can't get to that today. We will try to get to that tomorrow or later in the week. We should start making a list of stuff that we need to address in these home stretch segments this week. Because from what I understand, there's a lot to unpack. What we need to do today is talk about a mystery that has arisen from the Christmas party. And so for now, just for the moment, the Guy Benson Show is going to become a true crime podcast. Dan? It was late on Saturday night when a very disturbing development was brought to my attention as the party was winding down. Unlike last year, it seemed, we had avoided a major catastrophic red wine spill on one of our white couches, although there had been other spills, apparently, I found out later. And then, at the very last minute, when I thought we were in the clear, boom, a big you might even say blood, red stain, was pointed out on a very strange portion of one of our couches. How did it get there? Who done it? That is the subject of intense dispute, disagreement, finger-pointing, fear, frankly. Adam, my husband, posted on his Instagram stories, a reference to this mystery. And then the responses from partygoers started flowing in. People accusing other people. People claiming innocence. People trying to help us get to the bottom of what happened on that fateful evening. Now, it's interesting. On the drive in today, I called my best friend, Mary Catherine Ham, who was at the party. She did, in fact, have some red wine. I saw it. But she is also eight-plus months pregnant. She said, feel free to put me on your list of possible suspects since I was, A, sitting on the couch, and, B, drinking red wine. She said, but as you know, 
I drank very little red wine because I'm pregnant. One glass. She said, I would not waste my single glass of wine on a spill. I said, okay, yeah, that makes sense. There are a number of persons of interest, you might say, in this saga. One of them is a name well-known to many of you. In fact, she and I will be on the panel tonight together on Brett Bayer. Maybe I'll confront her. Katie Pavlich was in the vicinity. And perhaps quite incriminatingly, had some red wine stains on her white outfit. A spill had happened. Was it her? Now, we got a text message from Katie Pavlich later that evening informing us that a spill had happened, that some people might think it was her, but in fact that it was not her. On one hand, I trust Katie Pavlich implicitly. She tells the truth. She does not mess around. She is an honest, trustworthy person. So my inclination is to believe her. On the other hand, could this be a smelt-it, dealt-it situation where she was sort of admitting that she knew about something but disclaiming any further culpability, perhaps? Another person of interest, I'm just going to throw this out there, is my very own husband, Adam. Oh, Now, why do I say that? Adam famously within our house, does not like our couch. He talks a lot about having to replace that couch. I don't want to do it. I like the couch. Couches are expensive. I don't want to spend the money. He whines about the couch, I would say at least on a monthly basis. What better excuse than to ruin it further with a big red wine stain to prove yet again that it's time to upgrade the couch and maybe get a different color? He had motive, he had means, but did he have opportunity? As it turns out, and I have since confirmed this, he was already asleep by the time the spill occurred. You see, he had a flight the next morning, early. Tactical mistake, by the way. You're throwing a huge party, you got a flight to go to work the next day. Mm. Glad that wasn't me. I was up far too late because of Cat Timpf. Another story added to the list, Wyatt, for later in the week. The Cat Timpf effect. She is a bad influence, actually, in some ways. A great and awful influence at the same time. But apparently, by the time the crime occurred, Adam was asleep in bed. So he has an alibi. Which brings us... To another person of interest, you might even call her the prime suspect. Producer Cookie Christine. We will confront her right after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. A Benson Show. We are back. It's an extended home stretch, true crime edition here on The Guy Benson Show as we are trying to get to the bottom of an outrageous red wine spill. And as I said before the break, we have someone in our sights, and it's producer Christine. I, uh, during this time of season, I like to go buy a Christmas cookie, please. You can identify however you'd like, Christine, but here at The Guy Benson Show, true crime podcast, 
we don't really cater to the whims of our suspects. Now, here's the thing. Christine, by the end of the party, how can I put this? Christine was feeling no pain. She was pretty, pretty happy to the point that it took several of us quite a few minutes of cajoling to get her out and then to pour her into the Uber with Bobby to head back to the hotel. She had a very lovely time, had made the rounds, chatting with everyone. She was a hit with some of my friends. They're like, now, who is that person again? Is that your producer? Do you work with her? She was having fun. I'm like, oh, I don't doubt it. And she and I chatted a little bit, mostly earlier in the evening upon her arrival. And then again at the very end when we were trying to basically lure her out of the house because it was well past time for her to start to sleep it off and maybe get some water into the system, for example. And I would not have guessed that Christine would be on the list of possible suspects here. I mean, in fairness, yes, I probably would have. But I did not see her on the couch over the course of the evening. She was usually standing, often out in the tent on the back patio. So I'm not sure if she was in the vicinity, so to speak. However, I learned something very interesting over the course of my investigations. Wyatt, maybe you can help me with this. Is it true that producer Christine was responsible for multiple spills of red wine over the course of the evening, including one on my husband and another on the aforementioned Katie Pavlich? Wyatt, is this true? Did Christine spill twice on people? Um, my inclination is just to plead the fifth, but no, I, this is that's the amendment that allows you to avoid self-incrimination. I'm not asking you about you. I'm asking you about someone else as a direct eyewitness, and the witness will answer the question. There were multiple spillage, spilling of the wine. By a certain someone. Mm. But all that I can remember was only on a person once, then on a surface that was not the couch, I can confirm was not the couch, but was on another surface. So, okay. So, Christine, what is your recollection? Am I allowed to jump in here? Because I actually do have all recollection of this. Oh, I doubt that very much. But please plead your case. I did spill. Some of I bumped into Wyatt near the Christmas tree, and wine did spill. I immediately, and Wyatt can confirm, went over, got paper towel, and cleaned the spill up. Is that correct, Wyatt? Can confirm that did indeed happen. I also went to take a picture or I put my arm around your husband, and there might have been a little spillage. It was not red wine at that point. I think I had white wine because I remember patting him down with more paper towel and showing him, look, it's not red wine. It's just white wine. Wyatt? Christine, I, from my knowledge of my recollection, recollections, that was indeed red wine. Okay. Wow. Okay. Wow. Um, so that is a that is just a false memory that she shared. Or you might even call it a lie. What other stories and fables do you have for us, Christine? I also remember that after the spillage of the red wine on the floor and I cleaned it up, I looked at Bobby and I said, 
it's time to go home. And he goes, yep. And he called an Uber. And I can confirm that I was out of your house by 11.35 p.m. That is when the Uber picked us up. What about the Katie Pavlich spill? I, the only thing I asked Bobby about this, and he said, I didn't know you spilled on her. He's like, I thought you, she had a drink down on the table, and I thought as we were leaving, you grabbed it to take a sip. And we all said to you, that's not your drink. Like, I was trying to take her drink. So maybe when I put it down, I have no recollection of spilling anything. And if I did— Because she had this beautiful white top. Yeah, so I would like to text her right now and apologize because if I did, that's crazy because I remember she had such a gorgeous—she looked beautiful, stunning. Yeah, so it looked like someone had stabbed her by the end. Really? And it turns out that that was you. So she confirmed that. She said that I spilled on her. I shall quote from the text message. When I got up to leave, I noticed there was a wine spill on your couch. It looked like it was me because I was the last person sitting there. But I assure you, I did not spill on your couch. Either way, it looked like I did the crime. It looked really bad, but I'm pleading not guilty. I think your neighbors thought it was me since my shirt had wine all over it from Christine earlier in the night. End quote. That's from Katie Pavlich. Another what? Gap in your memory, Christine? Earlier in the night, I didn't even get there until like almost 8 30, 9 o'clock. I remember saying well, that's hello. Still to hours. Her. Yeah, there was, we were there. I don't know. I just wrote to her because I feel terrible and I would like to pay for her dry cleaning. I'm not, listen, if I make a mistake with alcohol, I am the first to fess up to it. I'm the first to offer to clean what or make amends. So I just offered to pay for it. All right, so let me ask you directly then. Producer Cookie Christine, do you deny spilling the wine on the couch? I 199.99999 whatever percent deny spilling wine on the couch. Elsewhere, yes. Wait, did you just downgrade from 100% to 99.99%? Is that what you just did? Yeah, well, you always have to just be careful when one is inebriated. (laughs) I've learned so my you're leaving lesson. Open, you're leaving open just a fractional possibility that you did do it. I have to leave it. Despite your yes. vociferous denial. Put aside money just in case I have to pay you. <laughs> yes. Well, really we're going to continue. Really comfortable with Wyatt because I really didn't leave Wyatt's side much of the night. So I really feel comfortable um, putting out there. that I couldn't possibly spilled on Katie and I feel awful. I definitely spilled on the floor. Clean that up. Don't think spilled I ever on spilled on the couch. Oh, you yeah, yeah, I spilled on Adam. Yep, yep. What you spilled on Adam. So there was a lot of spilling going on. Now, could this be Christine admitting, confessing, if you will, to a number of smaller crimes in order to deny the larger crime oh. as a deflection, as a strategy? That is what criminals sometimes do. I know this because I watch Law & Order and other shows, and I listened to Serial back when that was a big thing. So I don't know. We are going to continue to investigate this matter aggressively. We take crimes like this extremely seriously here at The Guy Benson Show. And I'm actually being told we have an update in real time. Christine, what do you have? I do. I guess it's true. We can confirm. I did spill wine on poor Katie and her beautiful outfit. So I wrote and I said, I would like to send you a Venmo for the dry cleaning. She's very sweet, and she said, oh, my God, please don't worry about it. It's all good. It was so great to see you. Always such a fun time. All right, so that's lovely, very classy, high road from Katie. And the fact that you did not remember doing that and also got another crucial detail wrong about spilling on Adam, 
and did not 100% deny the couch spill, I think you are still a person of interest, if not the prime suspect, but this requires more scrutiny and it will get it. So to be continued. That concludes today's episode of The Guy Benson Show. Tune into Special Report tonight with myself and Katie Pavlich and others on Fox News Channel in the next hour. And we'll be back here tomorrow, same time, same place. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.